Well, we're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Mark in the fifth chapter. And I want to uh, begin with a, just ask you a question, reflect a little bit on, on uh, share my heart, but I, the way I approach this passage, have you ever felt totally desperate? I, I mean, where you had zero options. Now, think about that a little bit. Totally desperate. I don't mean that you recognized that you had some needs. I mean that you realized that you were absolutely desperate. You were at the end of your rope. You, you had zero options. There was no place to turn for help. Not a, not a hard path to get help, but you really felt, you really sensed, you, you, you genuinely realized that there was, there was no place to turn for help, humanly speaking. I, I can remember that feeling like yesterday, even though it was, it was, uh, uh, probably 20 years ago, and I'm, I'm thinking about this because you're going to see desperation in this passage, and, and tomorrow is, is my wedding anniversary, and the story that, that when, I, when I felt that had to do with, with Tracy and I when, when we were separated, and we'd gone back and forth for, for, for a long while um, trying to reconcile, and one night after a lot of back and forth, we talked on the phone, and I told her I was, I was going to church the next day, I was still an unsaved man, I didn't know the Lord. And I don't have time to tell you how I ended up going to, to church, but, but that's what I was planning on doing. And I asked her if she was, if she was coming. And she said, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, you just have to find out tomorrow whether, whether I, I, I come or not. But, but if I don't show up tomorrow, then, then we should just quit this back and forth. It's probably over. And I can remember getting up and getting dressed and going there the next morning. I didn't live too far from the from the church, and she lived very far from the church because she was she was living with her parents at the time, and and um, she'd moved back there. And I, I can remember sitting there in the service. The service started. I can remember they were sitting there as an unsaved man, and just like Stephen began this morning, uh, the church service started, and and she hadn't shown up, and. And I thought, well, maybe she's just a little bit late. And then one song went by, and then the announcements, and, and she wasn't there. It was like ten minutes. And I can remember just transitioning from a little bit of hope to, to no hope. I, I think in those ten minutes, literally in ten minutes, God allowed the weight of my entire life to fall down on my head. And I felt desperation. There were no options. There were no recoveries. Uh, and it, 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 it crushed me. And then about that time, I, you know how you catch somebody out of the corner of your eye? Um, it was her, and she'd been outside in the parking lot arguing with, with God about whether to come in for ten minutes. And she had her own crisis. Her crisis was to trust God, not her circumstances, and trust the timing of His work in a, in a human being, in a man. And when she came in, when she sat down, at that moment, I never will forget it, I said to God, again, I'm not a Christian, I said, God, I made a mess out of my life doing, doing it my own way, and I'm going to listen to what this guy has to say today. Uh, I, that, was, that was the moment, the first moment that I ever expressed genuine faith. Maybe you need to pray that this morning before we ever even get started in, 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 the, in the message. I made a mess out of my life. I don't know what's coming, but I'm going to listen to what this guy's got to say today. 
And it was, a, it was utter desperation that, that led me there to express genuine faith. The first expression in, in God. And today we're going to see how, how Jesus is declared, how, how God reveals that he is Lord over disease and over death. And Mark is going to record the first resurrection in the, in the New Testament. If Jesus is the Son of God, and he is, if he's the one who... God has sent to save mankind. If he's God in flesh, he must have the power to conquer the greatest enemy that we all face. And that's, that's death. Everyone in this room is, is going to, to die. Even if the Lord comes, you're not going to experience a natural death, but you're going to experience a shedding of this body and a, and, and a new body. But everybody in this room faces death. And yet everyone in this room, according to the Bible, can live and never die through the work of, of Jesus Christ. He can restore what sin destroys and what death conquers. And in this passage, it's, a, it's kind of a story within a story. It's one of those times, Mark does this twice, and I'll show you the other time when we get there. He starts with a story, which is Jarius comes to him and wants his daughter healed. And as they're moving along, he inserts another story, which is the woman with the issue of blood. And then he brings us back to, to the actual healing of, uh, of Jairus. He, he heals a woman on the way to heal a 12-year-old girl who actually experiences death. He heals a woman who suffered under the threat of death for 12 years. And, and what's interesting is in the previous stories, whenever Jesus' power is, is displayed, the disciples fear greatly. When his power, it's on the sea, when his power is displayed at the demoniac, the, the townspeople fear greatly the, and say, leave. The disciples want to get out of the boat or get Jesus out of the boat because they realize they're in the boat with God. The, the Gentiles want him to leave their city. But when his power is displayed in both of these stories, these individuals respond in faith and not, and not fear. When he demonstrates the power over death and disease in, in the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see the right response to desperation, which is faith in the Son of God. Not fear and, and, and say, away from me, even though you are a sinful person, even though they were sinful. It, it will be, uh, I am a sinful person, and I bow before you, and I express faith. I receive the grace that you offer to me as a sinful person. You are the, the Son of, of, of God. There's a desperate ruler in verse 21 through 24. And then we pick him back up again in verse 35 through 43. A desperate ruler who expresses, who expresses humble faith. And in verse 25 through 34, that, that, that story within the story, there is a despairing woman who experiences a, a hope-filled faith. So there's really three scenes here. There's when Jesus comes back on the seashore, and the, and the ruler bows before him. There is the experience with the woman on the way to the synagogue ruler's house. And then there is when he's told that the little girl dies, while he's still speaking, Jesus comes to the house, and then he goes into the room where the, where the little girl is, is dead, and he raises her from the, from the dead. So along the sea, on the way to the house, and in the house, those are the three scenes that we that we see today. And here is how I, would, how I would outline it. Jesus is shown to be Lord over disease and death 
And there is a faith-filled request for care in verses 21 through 24. That's the, that's the ruler of the synagogue. There's a faithful delay for compassion. That's what Jesus does when he delays to heal the woman with the issue of blood. And then there is a full display, a full display of his power. And that's for, for confirmation of who he is. We're not going to cover all three today. We'll cover the first two. But let's look at this faith-filled request for, for care. Look at you what at verse 21. It says, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him so that he stayed by the, by the seashore. Jesus returns from uh, the gatherings from Gadara, from saving the demoniac, who he sends out to be the first preacher, the first missionary. And when he returns to the Jewish side of Galilee, the crowd is there to meet him. The crowd sees him off, they wait, and then they're there whenever he comes back. This is probably Capernaum, because the crowd is there, and that's who he left. And it also mentions the synagogue. Some of you who have been to Israel have stood in this very location that this scene is taking place. And I can picture it in my mind. It's the place where, in Capernaum, where, where we send you uh, out for an hour or so to read your Bible and to pray. It's right on, the, right on the seashore. And it's within eyesight. The seashore is within eyesight of the synagogue. You can see it from there. And you can also see Peter's house between the synagogue and the, and the seashore. And so you have this crowd, Jesus arrives, and then Mark introduces two specific people out of the, out of the crowd. And, and they're an interesting couple. They have no relationship to each other. One is a man and one is a woman. One is rich and one is poor. One is respected and one is rejected. One is honored and one ashamed. One leading the synagogue, the other excommunicated from the synagogue. One with a 12-year-old daughter dying, one with a 12-year-old disease, suffering from that disease. The man is a ruler, and the woman is humble. And he is brought low in his desperation, and she is lifted high in her desperation. It's very interesting how he puts these two, two stories together. And so Jesus comes, there's the crowd, and so he remains along by the, by the sea. Remember, they're pressing in him, and they're crushing him, they're seeking what he might be able to, to give them. And look at verse 22. We're introduced to the man first. And one of the synagogue officials, the rulers of the synagogue named uh, Jairus, came up, and seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will be saved or get well, be healed, and, and, and live. The first thing you find out about this man is he is a ruler, one of the rulers of the, of the synagogue. Now, if you go to Acts thirteen fifteen, which you can write that down, you'll see that there's a plurality of rulers in the synagogue. There's, there's more than one. And he's one of those rulers. Traditionally, that was three to three to seven people. And these weren't the teachers of the synagogue. These were the overseers. They regulated the, the worship activities. They, they regulated the reading of the Torah. They would probably have been the one that, like when Jesus, when we see Jesus go to the Nazareth, and, and he reads from the Isaiah scroll, a ruler of the synagogue would have been the one who'd asked Jesus to do that. They, they select somebody to lead in prayer. They invite people to preach. They're the one that cares for the scrolls in the side room of the, of the synagogue. They're, 
They're the ones that organize the synagogue school. They're the, they're the rulers. They're the leaders of the, of the synagogue. And that's what this man, that's his position. It's a, it's a position of great responsibility, highly honored in, in Capernaum. And so to find him at Jesus' feet is shocking. Why? Because a, a, a synagogue official would be connected to the religious establishment, specifically in Capernaum, and we already know how they feel about Jesus. They've already declared what they think about Jesus. They've already declared that he's not the Messiah, and they've already brought in the big guns back in chapter 3 up from Jerusalem to declare that what Jesus is doing is being done by the ruler of the, of, of the demons, Beelzebub. They've, they've already de- determined that Jesus is demon-possessed. This man as a ruler of the synagogue, would have been part of that declaration back in, chapter, back in chapter 3. So to find him here at Jesus' feet, I might add that the, the, the synagogue rulers have already begun to plot for Jesus' death. That's at the end of chapter 3. They've already declared that they're going to they're gonna find a way to kill him. And here is one of their own, one of their rulers, at his feet. And so for this man to seek Jesus out of a crowd publicly... And fall at his feet shows he is desperate and reveals a, a sense of helplessness and a sense of need. Don't you think that this man went to his other buddies in the synagogue? Don't you think that he exhausted all efforts before coming here? I, I think he did. And yet this man in that same synagogue that declared that Jesus was not the Messiah, the very man that he's now bowing before, this man was probably in the synagogue whenever Jesus comes in and the demon exposes himself and says, what business do we have of you? You are the Holy One of God. He heard those words. He heard a declaration of who Christ is from the mouth of a demon. And he expresses humble faith in two statements. So you find him, he's a ruler, he comes, he finds Jesus, sees Jesus, falls at his feet, and in verse 23, he expresses his faith in two statements, two purpose statements. He implores him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death, please come, that you lay your hands on her so that she will get well and and live. Come so that you may lay hands on her, so that she may be saved or get well and live. He's saying, come. The purpose of your coming is so that Jesus could lay hands on her. And and the purpose of laying hands on her is so that she would get well. He believed that. He believes if you come and you put your hands on her, by the purpose of putting your hands on her, she will she will be saved. She'll be she'll be healed. And this man's faith is in Jesus Christ, and, and, and he expresses it clearly. No doubt his heart's breaking. Can you hear his heart breaking in here? Please, he implored earnestly, please, my little daughter is at the point of death. My little 12-year-old daughter is at the point of death. Now, now you men that have the privilege of having a, a girl know what it's like to have a daughter. Um, there's something special about boys, but there's something also special about little girls. They have the key to your heart, and here, this man's little girl is at the point of death. His heart is breaking. He's reached the point where he didn't care what the religious establishment thought. He didn't care what others think. He doesn't care what the crowd thinks. He had a need, and that need that he had was his little girl. She was dear to him, and she was nearly dead, and he needed God. And so here he is on his knees before Christ. 
Do you know why you won't come to Christ today? Or why, if you're a Christian, that you won't come longing to hear a message or pray or read? It's not because you're too busy or because you need more convincing. It's because you don't think that you need God. Really. You don't recognize the need that you have for God. Because when you recognize your true need for God, then there's only one place to turn, and that's to God. And so until you get to the place where you're willing to turn to God, it's evidence that you don't realize the extent of your need. You're not desperate enough to do what you should, which is come to Christ. You're not the end of your own efforts You think you've got this, whatever this is, and you're not needy enough. That's, that's not this man. This man knows he has no place to look but up. And so, knowing that he has no place else to look but up, he goes down on his knees, on his face before the Lord. That's why growing people are broken people, and they're humble people. And God gives grace to the humble You'll never grow until you first realize your need. You remember how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount? A lot of blessings. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Can you say that you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is it, is it, is it the salt and pepper at the table? God, yeah, yeah, I mean, God's great. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus says those that do shall be satisfied. He'll not disappoint you. Look at verse 24. Look at how Jesus responds to this man. And he went off with him. And the large crowd was following, pressing in on him. Jesus obliges. He he goes off with, with the man toward the, the, the little girl's house. Now, now, I want you to think about this. Jesus doesn't say to this man, well, wait a minute. Now, by what power will I be doing what you're asking me to do when I get to the house? Will I be doing that by the power of, the, of, of, of Satan, like you and your other buddies declared? Do you, do, you, do you really believe that I am who I am? Jesus doesn't say any of those things. He knows exactly, because this man's posture and the way he approaches, he knows exactly that he realizes his need, and so he goes with him. And Jairus rises, and I'm sure with, 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 with joy anticipating that all's going to be well because this is genuine faith. But on the way, there is an interruption. And his faith is tested and, a, and another woman's faith is, is granted. Let's look at this fateful delay for compassion. Now, when you're, when you're reading a narrative, when, when there's a story like this, what God wants you to do, what Mark wants you to do, is feel, try to feel what it felt like to be Jairus. Or, in this case, the woman with the issue of, of blood. And the crowd sets up the scene for the miracle within the miracle. This crowd is following in verse 24. And now this pitiful woman is, is introduced in verse 25. A woman who had a a hemorrhage, an issue of blood for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians. That's not a slam on doctors. You, wouldn't have went to, you would not have wanted to go to those doctors in those days. And he had spent 
and, and she had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. And after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and clasped or touched or grasped his, his cloak, his outer garment, probably the tassel that was there. This is one long sentence. Verse 25 to 27 is one long sentence. There, there are seven descriptions of this woman that lead to this one act where she grasps a hold of the, of the tassel. Mark wants to describe to us her condition before he ever uh, uh, shows us what she does to help us realize why she does it. She has an issue of blood for 12 years. She suffered much under many doctors. She spent all the money that she had. She had not been helped, but it had gotten worse. At verse 27, she now turns to Jesus. She, she'd heard about Jesus, so she approaches him from behind, and then there's the one act. She touched his garment. Even It even tells us what she's thinking when she, when she did that. In verse 28, for she thought, if I, if I just touch his garments, I will, I will be saved. I'll be made well. Her condition is described from, from going from bad to worse. It's a long-term term illness. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever it comes to, uh, to getting sick, I'm a, I'm a sissy. I mean, I want to be sick as little as possible. If I can take ibuprofen to make the pain go away, I'm going to take it. If it says take two, but uh, take four if it's really bad, it's always really bad. I need four of them. I, I don't like to, to hurt. I, I just don't. And you're probably the, the same way. There may be a different pain threshold. But this woman has been in the same condition nonstop, day in and day out, for 12 years. It's called an issue of blood, which means a hemorrhage of some kind. We don't, we don't know what kind of it is. There's, there's lots of possibilities. But if you have ever lost blood, you know that there's a loss of strength. If it was a, if it was a female kind of problem, that would have obviously brought embarrassment and, and other physical effects. And because of this, she would have been separated as unclean for years. Leviticus says a woman is ceremonially unclean, that, that has an issue of, of blood. And she's that way for seven days. She can't go around others. She can't go in the temple, she can't go to Passover, she can't go to synagogue. And so here is a woman who was unclean for 12 years. The clock never stopped for her. And verse 26 tells us what she, what she tries to do about it. There's a lot of money spent, and she's now in poverty. And a lot of physicians were seen to no avail. The treatments of those days sounds like the backwoods of West Virginia. I'm not kidding, it's... Painful and horrible. The Talmud, the, the, the Jewish uh, prescription for a woman who had a problem like this would be to, I'm, I'm not kidding, I'm quoting, to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a lemon, linen bag in the summer and to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag in the winter. How would you like to have that for your medical care plan? You thought Obamacare was bad, huh? Exhausting all human means. She grows worse, and her time's running out. That's what, that's what Mark wants us to feel. Can, can you imagine 12 years of suffering, trying to find a solution? Not just the physical things, but the, 
the emotional things that go with it, the hormonal things that go with it, praying that God would get her out of this with no answer for 12 years, hearing about a possible cure and getting hopeful only to fail again and again and again, and now she's exhausted all of her resources, and even if there is some new treatment that comes along, she has no money to be able to to go seek it, and she's helpless, and she's desperate, and she's feeling this desperation when she grasps Jesus' tassel. In her mind, he is her last resort. She doesn't care about religious rules. She goes into the crowd, and she doesn't care about being unclean or making anyone else unclean. She's desperate. She sneaks up behind the Lord in verse 27. And she reaches out for his garment. Jesus wore a traditional Jewish robe, which would have had tassels around the bottom, and that's, that's what she grasped a hold of. The word doesn't, it's not like touch, like touch. It means to grasp. And all the while she is reaching, verse 28, shows us what's going on in her heart. Verse 28, for she thought while she's reaching... If I just touch his garments, I will, I will be made whole. I will, I will get well. There's no wavering. There's no lack of faith. If I can just cling to the fringe of his robe, if I can grasp it. Now, we're not told specifically why she did it. Why didn't she just ask Jesus like the ruler? There, there, there's, there's a theory which says that, that in that day, there were, the thought was if you could touch the garment of someone... That, that their power would transfer through the, uh, through the garment. But I want, I want you to note very, very clearly that Mark doesn't tell us that. We don't know why she does this, which tells me and should tell you that, that Mark doesn't think it's important for you to know that or to me to know that. And God clearly doesn't think it's important for us to know specifically why. I think, personal opinion, it's because she feels worthless because of what Jesus does for her later. She can slip in unseen. She's thinking, I can crawl in on the ground, out of sight from everyone, just grab the tassel. There's that much power in it. What's important is the touch brought immediate and complete healing after 12 years of, of suffering. Look at verse 29. Immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up. The hemorrhage ceases. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And look at verse 30. And immediately, Jesus perceived in himself that the power proceeding, proceeding from him had gone forth and turned around to the crowd and asked this question, who touched my, my garments? She immediately perceives that she is healed, and Jesus immediately knows that he, that he healed her. Luke says that the, the hemorrhage dried up and she felt in her body that she, was, that she was healed from her affliction. And the word for affliction is like scourging. It's what happened to Jesus on the cross. This is how crushing this situation was for her. Now, now, now why did this happen? Is there magic in his clothing? I mean, think about it. The obvious answer is no. Not everybody who touched Jesus got this kind of got this kind of release of, of his power. The disciples touch him probably all the time. And yet God healed her that moment, the very moment that she touched his garment, and he did that based on her faith. How do we know that? It, it's, it's plain right there in verse 28. She is reaching, 
And she is thinking, if I just touch his garment, I will be saved. I will be well. As she is reaching, she was believing. Do you see that? As she is reaching, she is believing. She reached out to Jesus in faith. She touched Jesus with an expectation of salvation. And she reached out in faith. It's exactly the same for you whenever you come to the Lord, or for you when you did come to the Lord. There's no magic in sinner's prayer. There's no magic in whatever evangelistic method that I could come up with, ABC, or ACB, admit, confess, believe, whatever it is. There's no magic in the, in the words that you utter. But when those words are expressed toward Jesus in faith, and that prayer is an act of reaching out to Him, in desperation, asking Him for, for what it is that only He can provide, then God chooses to save. It's a beautiful thing. And in prayer, you're reaching as you're believing. And God's power immediately saves. That's what it says in verse 30. Immediately, Jesus perceived that power had gone out of Him, and He turns around in the crowd... And he asks a question that baffles the disciples. Look at verse 30. Who touched my garment? Or in this case, the, the tassel of my, of my garment. I mean, did Jesus, I mean, is he walking along and he, he kind of feels it like a fishing line, you know? He feels somebody tugging on him. And he asks the question and he says here that verse 24 says there, a large crowd was following him, pressing in on him. I mean, they're all around him. This whole gaggle that starts on the seashore, that when he gets out of the boat, they absorb him in the middle of the crowd. I mean, if you had a drone, you're looking over, Jesus is in the middle, and it's this scrum all around him. And then they begin to walk with him. The whole herd moves as Jesus is going toward the the ruler of of the synagogue's house. And in the midst of that, some woman comes in behind Jesus, down on all fours, and reaches out, and, and grasp a hold of his garment and is immediately healed, and the Lord immediately knows what took place, so he asks the question. And I can tell you, you're right, it's not because he doesn't know who it was. He asks the question because he wants to reveal something to the woman, and he also wants to teach his disciples and, and you and I something. Look, look at how the disciples respond to this question. His disciples said to him in verse 31, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? To them, it's pointless. Why would you ask such a stupid question? I mean, the people are all around you. How could, even if you wanted to know, how could you know? They crush, they, they, they cram, this woman crawls on the ground. Their question shows disdain. They thought it was ludicrous. So many people. How could anyone know? You know what's interesting in this passage that there are two times, the two times that Jesus faces ridicule in this passage. Once is here, once is right here with a question from the disciples. And the other is, we'll, we'll see next week where the, the people, people laugh when, when he says the little girl only sleeps. The mourners are in there. He says, where are you mourning? She's not dead. She sleeps. They laugh at him. They ridicule him. And why do the disciples act this way? They're impatient. They're impatient with the Lord. 
That's what the, the question expresses. Who touched my garment? Why do you ask that? You see the crowd pressing in on you. They're impatient with the Lord because the immediate mission was to assist the dying girl and and any delay could be fatal. You know who's from this same town? Peter. A lot of the disciples are from Capernaum. They knew the ruler of the synagogue. They knew Jairus. As I said, you can see from the seashore to the synagogue and between point A and point B is, 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 is Peter's house. His home was in eyesight of the synagogue. You could walk right out of the synagogue and in two steps, two shakes, be be it at, at Peter's home. And they're thinking, what kind of question is this? I mean, this man has humbled himself before you. He's a great ruler. He's the leader of the synagogue. He's acknowledging you. And he says his daughter's about to die. We're going there. What, what, what are you stopping? Why are you asking who touched you? How could you even know that? Do you think Jesus doesn't know what's going on with the little girl and the, and the ruler of the synagogue's house? You better believe he does. Jesus knows about this woman, and he knows that this delay to show compassion toward her will mean that the little girl was going to die. But he wants everyone to know that God is compassionate to all, and his power is not bound by time. The high will be brought low, and the low he will lift high. And his power is not limited by a clock. Do you think... That it took any more effort for the Son of God to raise that girl from the dead than the healer of disease? Do you think it takes any more power for him to speak and bring a, a, a body to life than it did to recreate the womb of this woman in order to heal her right there? It, it, it has nothing to do with, 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 with time. God's power is not bound by, by time. So when God works in the midst of time, he's doing it for a lesson or he's doing it to express care. And big or small, whether you're ruler of the synagogue or whether you're this this frail, desperate woman, God cares. Has God ever taken you on a detour or a time delay? And have you ever thought, I see no need for this? (laughs) Yeah, I know you have. God, don't you know that we don't have time for this? It, it, it may be to humble you. The time delay may be to humble you because you're not fully trusting. Or you may be a respecter of persons. The ruler expressed faith in Jesus. And what's going on now is his faith is being tested, isn't it? The joy in his heart. He's coming. He's going to the house. Can you imagine what you're gonna what you're gonna hear next week, whenever? They come, and the delay happens. Why are we stopping? And then they say, don't trouble the teacher any longer. Your daughter's died. Whew. Talk about air letting out of the balloon, huh? The delay also may be to lift you up because, because you need to, to see and understand he hasn't forgotten you. This woman had been praying for 12 years and thought God must have forgotten her. That's what I would have been thinking. And his path is always better, even if it has a delay that you can't understand. And his delay may be setting up something even more spectacular than what you're asking for. And he can work on your clock, on his clock, and he can work even when it seems like the clock's run out. 
So don't give up on the Lord. He's always right on time. Verse 32. And Jesus, he looked around to see the woman who had done this. He knows where she's at. And now she knows that he knows where she's at. It's look around. It's, it's it, Part of the word is, is parry, like where we get perimeter. Can you imagine that moment when she knows? She knows what's happened. She thinks she's coming in clandestine. And she knows that the Lord is looking at her. And the crowd is, that's there melts away. And look at what she does in verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Fearing and trembling, aware of what happens, she falls down before him. She tells him the whole truth. She tells him the whole story. She can The confession of her sickness, the confession of her faith, the confession of her healing, uh, the, the confession of her desperation, the whole truth, everything. She just starts coughing up alligators. Whatever it is, she's just telling the Lord. She declared it in the presence of everybody. She doesn't care who's there. It's her and the Lord. That's all, she, that's all, that, all, all that matters to her. Here's an open public confession. Two of them. The ruler of the synagogue and a lowly woman. An open public confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and my faith is in you. And she is confessing him before men. And so he's going to do what? He's going to confess her before the Father who is in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful thing? What a picture of salvation. And that's exactly what you need to do. God knows who you are. And you're in this crowd of people. And yet through His Word, He's looking right at you. And you are absolutely naked and exposed. He knows every one of your sins. He knows what you're doing right now. He knows what you did last night. He knows what you're going to do later today. And He is looking right at you. And you should do exactly what this woman does. In fear and trembling. It should be fear and trembling because you're dealing with God. You humbly bow before Him and you tell Him the whole truth. And you don't care who's around. It's you and the Lord. It wasn't the grasp of the garment that saved her, but the grasp of her faith in Him. Jesus was the object of her faith, reaching, pursuing Him as the expression of her faith. And the needed salvation came by His power. It came from Him. And the result from that moment was peace. That's what she has to look forward to. That's what you have to look forward to. Look at what Jesus says. Look at how he responds in verse 34. She tells him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. She is low on the ground, trembling, and what she hears is the compassionate voice of her Creator. And he calls her daughter. Respectful, affectionate way to address a woman after 12 years of scorn. He commends her faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. She believed and acted on that belief. He conveys to go in peace. 
Go in peace. It's a farewell blessing, wishing a person divine peace. And since he's God, he's saying, go in my peace. And he confirms that she's been healed and be healed of your affliction. She's already been healed of her affliction. She's already been healed and she knows it. And so does Jesus. He's pledging to her, it won't come back again. It's a word of assurance. I can remember some of my close friends, Jimmy being one of them that you prayed for not long ago, saying it's just, you're just... Old Brian, he's just laying down for the winter. When summer comes back around, next next time spring comes back around, old Brian will be back on the booze trail with the boys. He's just got religion for a little while. And I can remember hearing that and telling Jimmy, I didn't find religion, I found Jesus. And in reality, Jesus found me. And when Jesus finds you, you go in peace and it's permanent. He has you in the palm of his hand. Before you can ever get in the palm of his hand, you need to bow at his feet. And it doesn't matter who is looking or what, and you tell him the whole truth. And whenever you do that, you'll hear son, you'll hear daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You're healed of your affliction.